Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and you're listening to the second episode of a short series about digital therapeutics. In the first one, Jessica Schul, European lead of DTX Alliance, explained the basics. How do DTX compare to medications? How are clinical trials to prove DTX efficacy done? And how are DTX regulated and more? We're aware that there may be uh, side effects and adverse events due to a DTX. And that's something that we're trying to work out with the individual companies, but also looking at the real world evidence. There's also the idea, you know, because our executive director is a pharmacist and and she's working with the U.S. Pharmacopeia to say, okay, not only may there be uh, negative side effects, but there also may be necessary to look at the DTX on DTX interactions. So, yeah, in that sense, it's very much looking at DTX as a drug. In this second episode, you will hear Paul Sims discuss the relationship between the pharma industry and DTX. Paul is the CEO and founder of i pharma an international hub connecting senior-level pharma executives, patient groups and other health stakeholders to exchange ideas and observe shifting trends and practices through events, reports and conferences. For more info and a recap of the show, visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. After the introduction with Jessica and today's discussion with Paul, as part of this series, you will be able to listen about a few practical examples of DTX solutions in the upcoming episodes. The first practical example is going to be Hello Sunday Morning, an Australian organization which aims to curb drinking problems and negative effects caused by alcohol. This is something that is especially important during the COVID-19 crisis where people either find themselves alone in isolation or are struggling with family tensions because of the need to be at home most of the time, says Jamie Moore from Hello Sunday Morning. Increased drinking are are being seen in Australia already um, and I believe are are being seen around the world. So that we saw the World Health Organization came out a couple of days ago sort of letting people know that drinking copious amounts of alcohol is really not going to be an effective long-term coping mechanism for periods of social isolation. Um, You know, there's there's been many interviews and news stories in Australia written about this already. Um, Young people in particular had sort of been telling the media that you know alcohol was sort of this social lubricant in society for them um, but now it's really becoming a necessity to, to get them through the day in their households so we are really concerned about what's happening already but if this is going to go on for six to 12 months like it's it's going to end up having a huge impact on the health system because we're going to see people going to hospital and emergency departments because of alcohol in a in a time we want people to be healthier than ever. If you're not subscribed yet, make sure to do so wherever you get your podcast to be notified about the releases of the next shows. Now to Paul, who has been in the pharma industry for almost two decades, but still manages to be one of its more critical members. 
Paul, judging by your LinkedIn profile, you seem to be very critical of the pharma industry. So tell me a little bit what's been bothering you. And yes, indeed. Uh, I have been a little bit critical of the industry because I think that our industry thinks that because it has, uh, you know, had some very strong effects on, you know, world poverty, on the uh, average age of uh, uh, people's lives, that, you know, it's doing a fantastic job. I personally am motivated to be in this industry for the main reason being that uh, I see a huge gap between what we could be doing and what we are now. I see the pharmaceutical industry as the only global, well-resourced, scientifically driven part of healthcare. And I think that if there was a kind of CEO of healthcare, not that there is, that we would organize things very differently and we would be able to use pharma's resources in a far smarter way. Uh, and I think that uh, pharma companies um, tie themselves to the existing business model that they know, which is obviously um, finding, creating and selling drugs, um, when actually what the world demands is much more of a service model, much more of a value model, much more of uh, a vertically integrated model, if I can call it that, which we've seen change in so many other industries, but not yet in pharma. Why is that, in your opinion? So why is um, progress happening so slowly in pharma? There's so many competent people in the industry. There are very intelligent people, more intelligent than myself, that's for sure. Uh, I think the reason is because they haven't had to. Uh, I listened to a podcast from uh, Vass, the CEO of Novartis, about a year ago, Uh, where he basically explained, for example, the reason why so little innovation and disruption has happened in clinical trials is because they've been able to rely on the next great drug coming uh, and haven't really had to affect the system so much. I believe that um, so much of future potential can be met, not just through pure science, which of course will remain incredibly important, but also through uh, evolution in the system, which is where we have not historically focused and haven't had to. So to summarize, we've had it too good for too long. And uh, actually, I think that um, things like pricing pressure, I actually welcome um, because I believe it will force us to innovate. One thing that's also putting a little bit of pressure on the pharma industry is digital therapeutics, which in some cases have the potential to augment existing drugs and perhaps even replace some drugs. So a year ago, I for Pharma released a paper about digital therapeutics and it was titled DTX Threat or Opportunity. In your opinion, which one is it? What's your perspective on digital therapeutics as a pharma representative in a way? Yeah, well, the reason we posed it that way is because depending on how you treat it, it can go both ways. For most people, I'm pleased to say it's still an opportunity. Uh, pharma industry is embracing it. 
Um, I'm seeing far more resources going into it. The fear, of course, is that it follows the hype cycle uh, because there are some real difficulties, real difficulties, not just in adopting it within the pharma company, but also adopting it within the marketplace. You know, irrespective of whether a a digital therapeutic has become clinically approved, um, it has to be taken up by physicians who might find it very unusual to be prescribing uh, a, a digital product. And so my fear is that it could fall through a hype cycle dip um, as we see with many new technologies. Um, but of course, those people who stick to it, those people who do it the right way, those people who ensure that uh, uh, it's not just sustainable financially, but sustainable clinically, um, will actually ride out that dip and be the winners when it comes to the, the plateau uh, and, uh, and, and actually make it um, a long-term viable solution. And I believe that some of the, the data that um, the people who are doing it right are now seeing, um, for example, at Sanofi, um, is actually very, very uh, strong indeed. It's interesting that you said that uh, uh, you expect this uh, change in um, the attitude towards uh, digital therapeutics. So there's a lot of optimism about uh, digital therapeutics in the digital health community. However, uh, um, it seemed that in the last few years, pharma was also warming up to DTX. But then uh, Otsuka Therapeutics withdrew their financial support from Proteus Digital Therapeutics, um, causing Proteus to pivot from uh, uh, their focus on mental health towards oncology, infectious disease treatment adherence in January this year, and also Peer Therapeutics and Sandoz changed their collaboration in a move that was understood by many as the pharma partner backing off. So what I'm trying to say is that while pharma seemed to be uh, interested in DTX at first, it almost seemed at the end of last year that um, they just backed off DTX similarly as it happened with digital health startups where um, um, a lot of companies were kind of interested in seeing if they can do anything with them, but not many actually do, you know, so maybe a comment from your side there. Bad news makes headlines, right? So the news about Proteus, the news about Pear uh, uh, not working with Sandos is is obviously going to travel. Um, but Proteus, is, I would argue, is not really a digital therapeutic. Actually, the device, um, well, it was a digital medicine, very much a physical product. It, it required having uh, a, a piece of technology that was worn, uh, and the take-up of, of that was was problematic. Um, and, uh, as for Pear, they, they are still working with Novartis. Um, they learned a lot, um, and they learned and they've been willing to share that, uh, the, the marketing and business model they've pursued, uh, need to be better planned out ahead of time. They need to be non-traditional. Um, they need to be different from, from the existing, uh, commercial models that we're so used to. So, um, as I say, the headlines might tell one story. I think that underneath there is some very good work going on. There is definitely some optimism beyond just the digital community. Uh, and there are reasons, good reasons to be optimistic. Um, but yes, there will be failures. There will be more failures. There will be people that make it feel like we're going through that dip that I just talked about. Um, but it's not necessarily 
going to be universal and those that get it right that lead with with clinical um guidance as i mentioned before that don't overhype that uh, have those commercial models well planned well tested well researched can succeed so tell me a little bit more about that optimism and that uh, innovation and hopes that's happening around dtx in the pharma industry <laughs> Well, the fact is that these products have been shown to work uh, and in particular disease areas where uh, there's a strong mental component, they've been shown to work very well. I think you have to have a degree of optimism in order to innovate and certainly as an industry we need to innovate. We need to know that it's possible. One of the greatest issues that I believe that we have is that um, even though our regulators and our payers have been far more willing to work with us to innovate alongside us as an industry of late, they still can't pre-approve anything. They still can't um, provide any kind of um, uh, advance um, sanctioning of any kind of product. So you've got a situation where the innovators and the early adopters of the typical adoption curve are silenced, I suppose. And that means that our entire industry is is made of followers, made of people um, or even laggards who 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 wait for an innovation before they they do anything so we have to um double down on the optimism of those those innovators those leaders we often have to have a little bit of blind faith which is not natural for our uh, scientifically driven industries um we have to experiment uh we have to um try and scale the pilots that we do and we have to um as as i say have that maintain that optimistic outlook otherwise we will uh, fail as an industry and i actually believe that we are in danger of failing as an industry because um we all recognize the power of the uh technology companies, the largest technology companies, the incredible data sets they've been able to generate and the incredible rate at which they can innovate being far superior to pharma and, of course, not bound by some of the same compliance and hierarchical uh, history that we indeed have at our end. How could pharma fail as an industry? What I mean by that is that, well, put it this way, ask anyone in the industry if they think that uh, one of the major technology companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, um, uh, Amazon, will be a significant player within the pharma hierarchy in the next 10 to 15 years. The vast majority of people will say yes. Um, there are you know, hints that they'll even generate their own type of pharma company, and there's plenty of evidence for that. Yet, what's anybody actually doing about it? Well, we, of course, are partnering. Of course, we're trying to do things with AWS, with Google Cloud, with Microsoft Azure, all these kind of things. But that's, that's not enough. And um, I think we all recognize that um, pharma is going to fail relative to those technology companies uh, and certainly suffer as a result. Uh, and I believe that irrespective of the science, irrespective of the promise of a, a growing pipeline, some companies will suffer from not managing the system well enough. And that's where the, uh, the opportunity to do well actually is. Sounds pretty worrisome. <laughs> well, you don't have to be worried. There is, there is still time, but it does require fairly radical action. And that's why um, somebody like myself 
out and and say when there is a potential strong issue facing our industry. I was just trying to think uh, about the whole issue from the patient perspective, you know, because despite the fact that um, the pharma industry is often seen as this mean market player uh, full of greed and eager to just gain profits, the, the fact is that there's been so many new innovative therapies that have been saving lives. So... I don't know if the tech companies can, you know, take over all of that. I think that we need to stretch the definition of what we are doing. If we think of ourselves as traditional pharma companies, then we will play only in the pharmaceutical game and we will effectively become suppliers. I think that if we think of ourselves as companies that will do anything, whatever it takes to create health outcomes, no matter how broad, no matter how unfamiliar the techniques to do that actually are, then I think that we stand a chance. But that requires actually changing our business model. It requires operating in far more innovative setups where we give responsibility to a far lower level of employees as opposed to being hierarchical and centrist as we always have been uh, and actually enable some of the uh, newer, younger, more dynamic teams in our companies to be responsible for genuine innovations. And unfortunately, right now, there's very few companies that are actually doing that. Have you observed any bold moves or uh, changes in that direction in the last 17 years? So what would you say uh, is the most positive advancement in the industry? I think the most positive advancement is the desire. There's clearly a recognition that we've diagnosed the problem. Uh, we The problem is that we haven't necessarily found the answer. At least we're in a state of experimentation. I would say we've probably been in a state of experimentation for a decade at least. Um, now we're looking for a business model that is sustainable that uh, actually takes into account many of those uh, innovations that we've just been talking about. So um, I'm still optimistic overall. I'm still optimistic Uh I think that we have to go through a process of creative destruction. Uh, and if you're familiar with that phrase, um, it often means um, killing uh, cash cows, which can be very, very painful, but ultimately can result in, in real, um, really, really strong benefits. Because if you think about it, we're an industry that has over-optimized in certain areas. We've optimized for the traditional situation. So going back down the hill and then climbing a new mountain is very difficult when we can al already think that our current mountain is, is very good. The problem is that the landscape changes and those, those new mountains can outgrow the existing ones. So we need to be willing to go down that mountain to unlearn, as it were, uh, and to relearn new techniques. That's very hard to do. It's very hard to convince people around you to do. It requires real leadership. One of my greatest um, hobby horses at the moment is that I believe that our leaders might be doing a very nice job of that optimization, but they're not doing a very good job of determining a different vision and articulating that vision, not just internally, but externally, such that um, the 
the troops on the ground. That means employees and partners and patients nowadays even actually follow the wise words of, of that leader. Do you think any CEO of a pharma company would survive killing a cash cow? It's known that sometimes um, molecules or, or therapies change just slightly, become me too drugs, but with a new patent which enables higher profits. To be clear, when I say cash cow, I'm not talking about a successful and well-earning uh, molecule itself. I'm talking about processes, organizational routines, the way in which things are done. So if we know that a process ABC is what you know requires us to maximize our profits in a certain area, that might be true today, but it's not necessarily true tomorrow. And that's the sort of um, process redesign that I believe, and that's what I mean by when I say the system needs to change, not necessarily the science. The system by which we bring the science to medicine is the part that needs to change. Before we continue with the topic of digital therapeutics, could you perhaps outline uh, the latest uh, advancements in the pharma industry in general in the last decade um, about uh, new therapies? So we've seen gene therapies being developed, immunotherapies are becoming more and more available. Um, there's new and new medicines driven by precision medicine approaches. So what else can you describe, you know, as a plastic example of what is out there um, for patients, just in general? Uh, the key trend has been specialty, if I can use one word to describe it. We obviously um, have had price erosion for our um, chronic disease drugs and our less innovative uh, areas. And uh, it's very, very clear that um, to, to, to make our company survive, people have sought higher margins. That means more specialty. And I have no criticism, of course, of pursuing rare disease, pursuing cell and gene therapy, where the science is genuinely extremely exciting and the potential for curative therapies is very significant and I don't want to put any uh, barriers in the way of, of, of ensuring that that can, that can proliferate. Um, but I do think that um, Big Pharma has a societal and social responsibility beyond the search of short and medium term investor returns. The companies obviously have a, a huge global and economic footprint and the resources and capability, like I said earlier, to impact billions of people fundamentally change the trajectory of human longevity and productivity. Um, and so being able to uh, continue to focus particularly on the service and process side of the chronic diseases of which is what the world generally demands. It's where the, the greatest suffering currently is. Um, we need to be able to, to not neglect those chronic diseases. We need to um, welcome the sort of partnerships and the innovators that are going to actually disrupt that part of our industry, which has been increasingly neglected. And uh, that, that is, um, that's where the work needs to be done. 
So where do you see digital therapeutics in all this story? Because uh, in the early days of digital health and when first apps became available for uh, reminding you to take your pills and other um, help to manage diseases, um, at first there was a lot of hope that this would help patients then it turned out that adherence is is very um critical and that um apps are not successful because they uh, demand too much effort from the patients so is it going to be different with digital therapeutics in the long run according to your opinion Look at anybody under the age of 20. How do they interact with healthcare? They do it through technology. They do it through their phone primarily. And that is indeed almost their entire world of interaction, whether for, for better or for worse. So it is absolutely true from a demographic level right through to an economic level that focusing on digital solutions, whether they be digital therapeutics or other forms of um, digital access to healthcare, and of course, the ability for patients to feel as if they are in control of their own healthcare, they're self-managing, they are um, able to, in the future, I believe that, you know, we will have digital twins, we will have approximations of ourselves made of technology, as it were, uh, that will be able to almost test uh, and consult with on a daily basis whether we should um, take one particular health route or another. Um, and it's the trend. It's where things are going. So if companies are not working on digital therapeutics, irrespective of the um, the uh, benefit of one particular um, app or, or device that they've been working on, if they're not working in this area, they are unlikely to um, have the skills and techniques to, to survive long term because let's be honest with you this is the gateway whether you like it or not uh, and it is the way in which um, the new generation is interacting with healthcare. It's interesting that you mentioned new generation and uh, new generations the reason I'm saying that is because new generations are much more careful about their data privacy, about the data gathering about them compared to older generations. Yet this is exactly what new technologies are driven by and why industry is interested uh, in developing these digital solutions because data obviously uh, has value. Uh, so, any thoughts there? Do you think that could be well, like, uh, I don't know, a problem? Privacy uh, and security of data is probably the greatest threat to the large technology companies today. And that has increased hugely over the past couple of years uh, and shows no sign of uh, abating. It looks like regulators like Marianne Vestager in Europe like some of the Californian lawmakers in the US, um, are getting teeth, they're growing teeth, they're, they're, they're finding ways in which they either have to share data with competitors or they are restricted in, in doing what they, they can do. Either way, it's the job of those people to regulate these industries um, because um, they absolutely have to uh, play within certain rules. Having said that, from a patient point of view, you would be very interested if it could be done safely in sharing your data if 
uh, it actually leads to better health outcomes for yourself and even for society. So you as an individual, you might say young people are concerned about privacy. Uh, historically, actually, I would say they haven't been so concerned by privacy, um, but they certainly um, have a social uh, consciousness that hasn't been seen in previous generations and the desire to uh, help as we've been able to see with all of the environmental protests of, of late. So um, we we require a safe place to make health data more interoperable. Um, the lack of interoperability of data is currently the biggest thorn in the side of making AI work as well as we wish it to, of being able to find new solutions. And I believe that companies like Epic in the US that um, are citing, that touting privacy as the reason why we shouldn't share data are actually doing so for very much self-gain and uh, it's very disingenuous behavior. Uh, and uh, uh, we we um, we need to find ways to make this data interoperable, of making it shareable, if we're going to exploit the potential, um, the far greater potential of being able to find new treatments that work. Yeah, the problem there is uh, that uh, patients usually, when they're sick, are not as concerned about their patient privacy. You know, it's about their lives so yeah that's why we have to rely on governments that's why we have to rely on regulators in the same way that you know you shouldn't have to worry about whether or not your car is going to blow up um, when you drive it you should know that it's passed certain safety tests without you having to do those checks that's what governments are for that's why we need to rely on them uh, and yes it's a brand new world and it's a, a the struggling to grapple with the the complexity of the system and the ingenuity of the companies involved um, but they need to be uh, stronger and they need to uh, and I actually say this you know as a way to make the companies within this system better. You know, if they are regulated well, then we'll solve the trust issue. You know, it's interesting that companies like Facebook are now suffering the same trust issues that we in pharma have uh, suffered with for many years. Uh, and how, how, can we, how can we improve that? Well, they need to be shown to, uh, they need to show themselves to, to operate within the rules and even encourage the rules. You're actually on the advisory board of Humanity, which is a company that declared the 31st human right, uh, which is that everyone has the right to legal ownership of their inherent human data as property. Uh, anything to add there? Yeah, the sense that we could own our own data is a very powerful one because the moment data becomes property rather than simply something that is private, we actually gain far more control of it in the same way that we would own physical property such as a house or other belongings. I believe that the young people today were actually... Um, the new generation doesn't really own anything. We subscribe to things. Um, you know, we don't have bookcases anymore because we don't need to put anything on them. Um, and actually, um, one of the very few items that provides the shelter is kind of a sense of property ownership. I want everybody to feel that they have a property ownership within themselves, within their own bodies. And it's a very powerful sense that you can choose what you wish to do um, whether it be to keep it as private as possible or whether it be to sell it, to enhance it, to give more information, to make it more saleable. 
Um, and you actually have that preference um, depending on your own attitude to privacy versus uh, the gains that you might or society might gain from from making it shareable. So this is the basic premise of humanity. Uh, the company is actually focusing now on um, providing what they call consent as a service solutions. Uh, so you know the uh, the button agree or disagree that you obviously get when you sign up for any service. Typically, that's a one-off process uh, and you don't think about it again. But actually, you might wish in the future to regain control over your privacy. So um, humanity is kind of adding a new layer, a new security layer uh, into transactions that allow you as a, as a person to be able to turn on or off, to be able to have a bit more nuance around whether or not your data is shared or not shared according to your preferences as they change over time. Do you know uh, what kind of partners the company is already working on? Are there any pharma companies or digital therapeutics providers that are thinking in that direction? There are certainly individuals within most pharma companies that are very excited about this. The reason is because They believe that this actually, as I said earlier, improves that trust argument. Uh, it helps them, the companies gain that trust with a customer or patient population in the future. Having said that, the company is still working on its first release of this consent as a service solution. And so no company could sign up just yet. Um, but I believe imminent release will allow companies to come on board. And indeed, there are some companies that have already said that they wish to be front runners in taking up those solutions. Uh, before we talked already about the digital therapeutics and the relationship of DTX companies with the pharma industry, but I still want to go back to that uh, and to a quote that was also published in your report uh, last year about DTX, where Bojidar Jovicevic, the VP and uh, uh, global head of digital medicine at Sanofi, uh, said that um, there are several trends. Um, according to, to him. So uh, drug treatments are insufficient for most chronic diseases. So that requires additional support, education and monitoring. Next, uh, healthcare systems are struggling to manage the rising costs of managing chronic diseases. Payers and regulators are driving towards pay for performance and value-based care. And patients want to take control of their health using smartphones and other devices, as we discussed before. So these are all reasons why DTX have a potential. But do you think that the pharma industry really believes in these arguments Or are they just something you expect as a representative of a pharma company that collaborated with a DTX company to, to say, you know? <laughs> uh, well, Bozzi Bozidar is um, uh, a very smart man and he is collaborating with several organizations and he works for a pharma company. So I would say actually, yes, uh, those, those, uh, statements are true uh, and that they are believed by by people like him um, I think that um, it's true that uh, drug treatments are insufficient for most chronic diseases we have to treat the whole patient we have to look beyond simply the clinical improvement of a patient in order for them to as I said before truly manage and own their own health uh, I, health systems obviously 
struggling to manage the rising costs of managing disease. And indeed, with a digital therapeutic approach, with that sense of self-ownership, we could take a more preventative approach to disease. Uh, and uh, that uh, indeed is far cheaper and far smarter than, than the current curative models that we try to uh, deploy. Uh, payers and regulators are... They're still getting there in terms of driving towards pay for performance and value based. I'm actually a little disappointed by how long it's taking um, for value based contracting and other forms of value based care to actually see the light of day. It looked far more promising about five years ago in terms of speed, but it seems to have slowed down somewhat. And uh, I'd very much like to find ways of uh, giving it a kick. Um, I think pharma companies are resistant often to value-based agreements, whereas I believe that actually they can be positive tools to enable us to improve trust, improve uh, even commercial revenues in the future. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you liked the show, make sure to subscribe to be notified about the next episode automatically. If you have a minute, I will be extremely grateful If you leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, it really supports the show. Stay tuned.